Welcome to Breaking Free Podcast, your recovery, your way. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Liv. You're in the right place if you want to explore what it means to be in recovery, to challenge the things that keep us small, and to learn how to thrive independently. Together, we are Breaking Free. Just a quick reminder that while I'm a nurse and a coach, and Liv is a coach, recovery advocate, and a writer, we are not doctors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to, please, please see a doctor. The Alana Club of Portland is proud to sponsor the Breaking Free podcast. Your recovery, your way, is at the heart of our approach to recovery support services. Unity Recovery, an inclusive recovery community organization serving all of Philadelphia, is proud to support the Breaking Free podcast. Recovery is possible. Find your path to break free. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Breaking Free Podcast. I'm so glad you're here today. We are talking with Robert Ashford about um, how we show up and speak about our recovery and whether that is something that is contributing to stigma and shame for others. And so I can't wait to hear what um, Robert has to share with us. But first, I want to hear from Liv. So um, tell us a little bit about how you got to know Robert. I was trying to remember that earlier, how we were introduced, obviously through Facebook. But I think it was when we became I became aware of your research and then we became friends and then I have inundated you with questions ever since right (laughs) yeah I think you're right um yeah social media is the great connector um for all of its pitfalls and and our downfalls it really has allowed especially within the recovery community and people to connect all across the globe and across the country in our case but I do think it was that and and when we started heavily publishing, you were writing and, and wanted to pick up some of those stories. And I, you know, it's kind of just gone from there. But uh, we're always happy to, and I'm always happy to facilitate any request you have. So You are amazing. It's, it's so helpful, you know, for my journalism and any kind of writing that I'm doing to know that, it, because it's really important to me that the information that I publish is accurate. And, you know, as a recovery scientist, you are really ahead of the game with everything that you publish and it's reliable um information uh, and I really appreciate that thank, well, thank you. you for the kind words <laughs> um so let's uh we're gonna put your full bio into the show notes for people to read a little bit more about you um do you want to say anything up front ab- about yourself before we dig into the other questions yeah tell us a little bit about you and your recovery yeah, so if, if you haven't gathered um, or you don't know me otherwise, and this is your first introduction to me uh, through the podcast, so I am a person in recovery, uh, which means a lot of really cool things for me outside of just finding a sense of purpose and a sense of life, um, really a renewed sense of life, uh, is I get to be a PhD student. So I'm finishing up a health policy program at the University of the Sciences in Pennsylvania and specifically Philadelphia. Um, as everybody said, I get to publish a lot of research on recovery support institutions and services on a whole variety of issues. Um, but most importantly, I actually have a new baby girl, um, which is probably the coolest thing that has ever happened to me in recovery. Um, oh. Maybe Mary, my wife, was pretty cool, too, and she'll probably smack me later for not mentioning that. But <laughs> We love daughter, Ariel. <laughs> yeah, she, she's amazing. But uh, yeah, my daughter is just coming up on 12 weeks um, and is a huge, huge... Uh, outcome and, and benefit, uh, reward maybe for, mm-hmm. for my personal recovery and what the last six years have looked like. Um, so I get to do a lot of cool different things and I'm sure we'll talk about some of that, but, uh, yeah, it's, 
you know, a lot of what we do is, is thankful or I attribute to, you know, being in this recovery process and, and taking the next thing that comes and trying to make something out of it with the tools and coping mechanisms that I've learned over the last couple of years. Um, you know, so I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm. Awesome. Tell us what brings you to do this work that you do. Why are you so passionate about focusing on stigma and shame for people in recovery? Yeah, so it, it comes from a variety of, of avenues, I think, of, of what garnered interest, right? So as, as I said, I'm a person in recovery, so I just kind of have this general interest in what impacts our communities, how we best support people, you know, what the realities are that we experience in our day-to-day lives, many of which I've experienced myself. Um, and I think it probably originally started within kind of getting engaged in recovery advocacy. So before we were doing research or I was doing research, um, kind of an empirical basis, there was this idea of a grassroots community activism that was promoting, you know, we don't want to be talked about in this manner as people in recovery. You know, we're not abusers. We're not simply just addicts or alcoholics, which, you know, um, is certainly an important label that's reclaimed, especially in 12-step fellowships. Um, But for the general public, like there's a lot of stigma and shame and bias that goes associated with those things. So we did these things called recovery messaging trainings um, across the U.S. through Young People in Recovery and Faces and Voices, which is really what started my interest, right, of how are we talking about recovery to make sure that our, our community has everything that it needs and it just grew from that over the course of years, right? So as our, my recovery started to change and transcended, you know, I started with uh, more of a traditional pathway of residential treatment, followed by a recovery residence, um, heavily involved in a 12-step program, um, went on to a collegiate recovery program after that. But today, and, and over the last couple of years, it's you know, I, I don't attend 12-step meetings anymore, though I, I certainly support the program for those it works for. But for my wife and I, and, and uh, it's really become about engaging in a a consistent yoga practice, going to individual therapy with a, a master's level clinician that specializes in a lot of different things, um, and just living life. And I think for us, you know, looking at this work is the recovery experience is so nuanced and so beautiful, for the lack of a better word, that addressing the stigma and bias so more people have the opportunity to experience a life like I've had the opportunity to is, is incredibly important to me which I think is the emotional tie of like why I'm passionate about this work. Like there's a lot mm-hmm. of scientific and empirical reasons why it's also just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but the personal tie is, is definitely all that. Mm. I love that so much. So the idea that um, while there's, you know, there's need for science and research and all of that, that it's really a personal um, desire to help others to be able to access their own recovery um, opportunity. That that's really beautiful. Yeah, and that is yeah, it's entirely individualized, right? That's yeah, it's just, yeah, just like recovery should be. And I think you know we each have our own pathways and, and process to get to where we're at. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the best, the best ones for, are the ones that work, and also that instill the most passion in people to do whatever they're called to do. And for me, that's you know research and advocacy and activism um, and being a great dad. Why would go on? Sorry. No, I I think for those that we keep saying this word recovery science or recovery research, right? And I I think it's important for people to understand, like part of that field, while certainly not a requirement, you know, what differentiates it from addiction science is is that many of us that, you know, kind of started this movement for recovery science and started publishing on theories um, and research projects, uh, really what it means is that we're talking about a community-based participatory research model which means not only and oftentimes researchers themselves have lived experience in their recovery, but mm-hmm. this is research engaged with partners that are from the community, right? So we're not a bunch of scientists um, that don't have lived experience in dropping into a community and examining it and then publishing papers, right? We're, we're engaging in research with and for 
and by the recovery community at large. And, and I think it is a nice add-on that most of us that call ourselves recovery scientists, I would say 95% of the ones that I know, um, are all in some form of recovery ourselves too, which is you know, somewhat different than we normally would find in the academic spaces. Um, you know, it's, it's part of the underlying premise of why recovery science works. It's, it's essentially a, a very grandiose way of saying nothing about us without us. Yeah. I love that. And I love that, um, you know, through our conversations, we you've introduced me to other science uh, that's been produced by um, by your peers, uh, you know, like the landscape of recovery. And, you know, you've really kind of opened my lens to what the recovery landscape looks like. Um, I think so often we, especially if you've come through a 12 step uh, recovery, you have a very narrow perspective of what that looks like. And, you know, I'll, I'll underline that all of us here respect that if that's your pathway, but um, that isn't necessarily the picture of, of what recovery looks like. So Brandon's research was really important for you know that, that we've already discussed that on this on this podcast but if if it wasn't without you I wouldn't I wouldn't have known about that initially um one thing I wanted to ask you while we're on the topic of recovery and we've we've had an episode on this what we mean by recovery but it might be interesting to um for you to use the collaboratives definition of recovery do you want to talk about that yeah so one of the first things we did um and the Recovery Science Research Collaborative is kind of this, this founding group of, of scientists and peers and program officers from collegiate recovery programs and, and some treatment centers, uh, all good ones, I assure you. We have very tight guidelines of who we partner with in treatment for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of the first things we did when we met, uh, it's been two and a half years now, we met in Kennesaw mm -hmm. uh, State University in Georgia. And we needed to define what recovery was going to mean from for our collaborators' perspective to inform how we were going to view recovery and operationalize it for recovery science as a research endeavor um, to make sure that we're, how do we measure it the best way? How do we evolve from kind of this binary of are people using substances or are they not? So yeah. are they absolutely don't know, yes, no, by, you know, that being the primary outcome. We're like, it's, it's more than that, right? Like our experiences would dictate it's more than that. Reality would dictate it's more than that. Um, so we reviewed all of the different definitions of recovery uh, from SAMHSA, which had the working definition of recovery, which is, is my favorite outside of, of course, our own. Mm -hmm. um, Hazel and Betty Ford, uh, the Scottish um, uh, Drug Policy Commission, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There was about 20 different definitions. Um, and each of them had some pieces that made a lot of sense. Some had this predilection on abstinence, which didn't make sense for us. Um, and SAMHSA's didn't necessarily talk enough about the kind of dynamic nature of recovery. So yeah. what we published on in the Journal of Addiction Research and Theory was this definition, uh, which I'm, I'm quite fond of, is that recovery is an individualized, intentional, dynamic, and relational process involving sustained efforts to improve wellness. Um, so really, when we parse that down, what we're saying is that recovery is, is unique to every individual, mm -hmm. that it's some form of intentional action, that it's dynamic so that it can change over time. Like I said, mine had before. It started yeah. with 12 step. It's become about yoga today. Mm -hmm. um, and much parts, it's relational. So it's our relation to oneself, but also our community, our family, our loved ones, our peers, et cetera. Um, and then it's sustained over time focused on improving wellness so it doesn't have this this pre-required outcome of you have to hit this threshold to finally be in recovery right um, and it lines up much more with our i think the recovery movements uh, framework and paradigm for 2019 going into 2020 
uh, it just hits closer to home. Um, so we found a lot of researchers that have liked it, but we also found a lot of community members that I think really resonate with it. And of course you have those that don't, which is fine. But uh, for us, yeah. this is, was a really important critical step to start this work. I love it. I love that definition. We've talked a lot on, on this podcast about the necessity for our personal journeys to be fluid mm-hmm. um, and that our needs in early recovery were very different to our needs today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I love that you, um, you've done this work and it's, it's definitely something, a definition that I find really empowering. Um, Liv and I have talked about this on another episode, uh, which is, um, well, we'll pull it up, but um, the, you know, the, the part that I love the most is that it's kind of each person gets to define for themselves what, you know, what recovery means for them or looks like for them mm. and that it's a continued pursuit of it, but not, um, not a hierarchy. It's not, we're not talking about, uh, well, I mean, I, I do think it's, I was going to say we're not talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but to some extent we are because we do need to take care of our basic needs. But beyond that, you know, it's more of a continuum as opposed to a hierarchy, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I love that. Um, so one of the ways that we look at the lens of recovery on this podcast is, you know, per our title, breaking free and what are we breaking free from? And so um, I'd love to hear from you what breaking free means to you. Yeah, and I, you know, I've thought about this not only since y'all launched, um, you know, we've been doing some writing recently, uh, myself and Brooke Feldman around, you know, how we conceptualize and tell our recovery stories, especially through a kind of a critical mm-hmm. um, feminism theory and racism, uh, just all these different ways of, as we continue to evolve. Um, you know, and I think about that for me, you know, as I look at my personal recovery in our life, I mean, you know, breaking free today looks much different than just breaking free kind of from the grips of, of dependency on, on alcohol and other drugs mm-hmm. or my mental health symptoms and, um, uh, or medication, and all of these different things. Right. So I think if you were to ask me in year one, it was absolutely about that. I'm trying to break free from the grips of, of substance use and everything that that entails. Right. But, mm-hmm. but today breaking free to me means breaking free from kind of my own ego some days breaking free from kind of the systemic oppression that that faces people in recovery and people with who use drugs and people with substance use disorders people of color etc um you know and breaking free from kind of any artificial uh constraints that whether it's the world or my own mind may put on myself to to help others um so yeah i think it's it's much more an interpersonal breaking free today of how to exist and how to constantly be improving um, with, with very little focus on on using substances. I mean, I, I honestly can say I'd, I haven't had a craving in, in years and, and don't really think about it. My recovery is, is much less about my substance use today and much more about just who I am. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I love that, um, especially the ego part. I don't think we've said that before. Yeah, we've not talked about ego, not from a male perspective. I think we may we may have talked about it from a female perspective because I have a very strong view that I don't think women have much of an ego when they go into yeah. into recovery. But I don't know, and I can only speak for women, not men. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting topic. Maybe we'll have to dive into it a little bit. I definitely have have that challenge at times now. <laughs> But I don't know. I'd have to look. I'd have to do some thoughts about it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I love that you brought that up. The ego, and of course, the systemic oppression, which you know, the systemic oppression, which speaks so much to your work. I'm gonna clap there. And of course, the systemic oppression, which speaks so much to your work. Um, and so we have some more. We want to dive into that a little bit more. Absolutely. 
Yeah, we um, we know that you're someone who lo- you know who cares about helping others to break free from stigma and shame. Um, tell us, tell us why you're so passionate about that. So I think I think two reasons. One is you know as a person in recovery, uh, and I'll, I'll preface this by because this isn't video, right? This is audio, and you this may not know who I am. So I'm a, a yeah an upper middle class Caucasian male um, in America. So I, I come and live with kind of this inherent privilege that mm-hmm. underlies everything that I do. That doesn't mean that I don't have moments of, of barriers um, and disparity that impact me. Um, it's just that, again, everything that I do and any stigma or bias or discrimination, oppression that I might face is always kind of insulated and mitigated by the uh, kind of really strong privileges that I have as, as fitting those characteristics. Uh, essentially, I'm a wasp for those that <laughs> are, are out there podcast land. But so knowing that, and I just want to recognize that I think it's important to, to say it, um, that doesn't mean that I haven't faced various forms of, of bias and discrimination, right? So I, I have a criminal justice history um, from my past substance use and you know, driving under the influence. So I've been engaged in that system and all of the uh, kind of bias, stigma, and, and different forms of freedoms that are removed as you go through it. Mm-hmm. I faced housing discrimination um, because of that in my past substance use, even though I'm you know, in sustained remission and, and a person in recovery, uh, have faced you know, employment uh, barriers because of that history. I haven't faced educational opportunity uh, barriers because of that history. Um, so I think you know, personally why I'm so passionate about it is not only have I faced those things and, and while the consequences may be mitigated by my kind of inherent privilege, um, they're very real. And so I know it's also a microcosm of the other you know, 20 plus million people and really 40 plus million people, if we talk about the, both those who use drugs problematically now, as well as those living in recovery, um, that they just don't need to face, right? And, and I think some of that is systemically addressing those. But, you know, one of the ways and reasons we got passionate about it is that language is so strongly tied to those things. Mm-hmm. And it's free to change, right? So a lot of these things require billions and billions of dollars and huge systemic structural change that is really hard to do, should absolutely can, and should continue to be addressed. But what is low cost, low barrier, and can make an impact today? And those, you know, exploring some of those options language is one of the first ones so you know if you know anything about me it's that i am a, a very passionate about the language we use when talking about substance use and recovery and for me it's because of the potential positive impact changing it can have but also the low threshold nature it is to implement any type of change around the way that we speak write and talk um, about substance use and recovery all right we're going to take a pause here so that we can hear from our awesome sponsors The Alana Club of Portland is proud to sponsor the Breaking Free podcast. Your recovery, your way, is at the heart of our approach to recovery support services. As the largest and most diversely programmed non-clinical recovery support center in the United States, we've been proudly breaking barriers and forging new pathways for years to ensure everyone has a home in recovery. From peer mentoring to recovery CrossFit, from trauma-informed yoga to mindfulness training, the Alana Club of Portland has a recovery pathway that's right for you. Here at Unity Recovery, we believe recovery should be the expectation, not the exception. Whether you find support with mutual aid, harm reduction, medication, or yoga, your recovery is beautiful and worth celebrating. Learn more and become part of the recovery movement at unityrecovery.org. And we're back. Awesome. Yeah, so we have done some talking about stigma or shaming language, you know, and stigma in recovery. And I know that's, you know, a lot of the work that you've done. Um, But we did recently have a conversation that really sparked my interest. And I wanted to talk about that today. 
how the way that we talk about ourselves as people in recovery um, may contribute to others, um, you know, experiencing stigma and shame. And that, that was kind of a new idea for me to really start to look at. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I briefly mentioned it before. Um, you know, we, I wrote this uh, op-ed, if you will, it didn't get published in a, a newspaper, but it, the style of writing is op-ed. And, and Brooke Feldman and I, another social worker here in Philadelphia, we love Brooke. Been, she's great. You should have her on. We're going to. She's on the list. She is on yeah, the list. She's, she's amazing. And, and I think you should bring this up with her too. But I, you know, we, mm-hmm. me and her have these kind of, you know, critical thinking conversations, almost, almost quasi existentialist um, conversations around recovery, around multiple pathways, around getting nuanced and, and looking at the collateral damage that may occur, creating, looking at these matrices of oppression, um, because everything is, is really tied to the opportunity people have and the mm-hmm. opportunity they don't have, which is, is impacted by oppression. You know, and we begin to think about, you know, stigma reduction over the last 20 years or so has, has been phenomenal, right? Like people become active faces and voices of recovery through messaging training, through grassroots activism, and all number of reasons. And we've seen, I, I think, the needle move in some regards to their but we never stop to think about, you know, what was, what are the ways that we may be attributing to further stigmatizing the people that haven't quote unquote entered into recovery, meaning they still use drugs, whether problematically or not, you know, by positioning ourselves as these kind of worthy and unworthy people that essentially have the similar characteristics, but may not, may not be as far along on the path or want to go on that path. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're essentially the same, right? And I think, you know, part of what we kind of got to is that you know, the ways that we were trained and, and continue to tell our recovery stories and positions this this idea of unworthy or worthy or redeemed and unredeemed. And it essentially, as we lift up ourselves as, as people in recovery, especially abstinence-based recovery, you know, we're, we're causing this kind of collateral damage by further stigmatizing people who have, are still using drugs and people who haven't met the, the threshold or, or of acceptability by mm-hmm. the general public and systems that we might. Um, and so while we may be really lifting ourselves up, you know, I, I encourage people to continue to tell our stories. We're not saying don't do that in this writing. We're essentially just saying, and you know, we need to think about what are the ancillary damages or this collateral damage that we're causing just by the way we talk about it. I mean, if we, if I was to say, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I was impacted by substance use disorder, which you might think only impacts impoverished, you know, inner city youth, high at risk that are experiencing homelessness. Um, but it impacted me too. And you need to know that, like really what we're saying. So while that may be true and maybe it resonates with people that need to understand addiction doesn't know any boundaries, but also mm-hmm. at the same time, what's it saying? It's reinforcing that the only people that obviously should get addicted is everybody that meets that characteristic. So people yeah. that are in poverty, people that are experiencing homelessness, people living in the inner city, people of color. Um, and that's just not okay. Like we can't re- the system already has that message. People already know it to be reinforcing it, to be you know, essentially becoming the oppressors ourselves is just not helpful. Um, in our perspective. And we don't have all the answers. We don't know what the solution is, but I think it's high time that we begin those critical conversations. And, and I think as our movement, as the recovery community and movement begins to mature, these are the types of conversations that are going to continue to happen. Conversations like are happening on your podcast mm-hmm. or in our writing and our research um, and so many other areas, like these wouldn't have happened 30 years ago in our infancy or 60 years ago. Um, but the, you know, a sign of progression and maturation, I think is, is having these types of conversations. And, and beyond those conversations now, and I, I know you said that you don't have all of the answers, but I'm wondering beyond conversations, what else can we do? Do you have any suggestions? 
so I mean, again, I, I think because we're in such an infancy of even even challenging what yeah. the status quo has been, I, so there, there's this. I think there's a misnomer, and it depends on stage of evolution of change and behaviors, et cetera. But sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes conversations in and of themselves are a necessary first step and should be enough, right? Because we know mm -hmm. that most people are not having these conversations today. So I think it starts with that. I mean, yeah. some of the recommendations we made in addition to that is how we can reflect, review, and synthesize, you know, other social movements, other kind of writings and, and musings and philosophies from other groups. And one of those that we looked at was restorative justice models um, yeah. you know, that don't necessarily position people as redeemed and unredeemed, but it's a, a pathway of healing that doesn't force people to position themselves in this dichotomy of, of good and bad. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. Let's move forward together to mm -hmm. you know, achieve restorative justice um, and find a path forward. Because the other thing people will say, and what we, you know, we tried to counterbalance that is if we can't tell our stories in this way, how are we supposed to make amends? How are we supposed to be living proof of these things? Um, and, and I think there's ways to do that, like in models of restorative justice that allow the same things to happen without as negative tertiary and collateral damage. Um, and we could be absolutely wrong, right? So I, I think, again, this is it's such a starting evolution of where our movement's going that the best thing to do right now is to not shy away from these hard conversations. Um, and I think that's enough for now. Yeah. Like, you know, like with the conversations around white privilege, um, you know, to be open to being, you know, having that critical discourse and, and, you know, and being called out, you know, I mean, we, we prefer to call in than call out, but, um, you know, is, is being open to, that conversation happening and trying not to get defensive or to be mindful of your defensiveness around that and take that as an opportunity to reflect. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Liv, Liv does, you do an excellent job of calling in versus calling out. And um, we just had a conversation the other day where I said something and she was like, oh, I recently heard that that term is ableist. And it was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, thank you for telling me that. Like, I, you know, I'm still learning and growing. And just because I strive to be somebody who is, um, thoughtful about these things. I'm not perfect, and so being aware that maybe we know, should mention it. Yeah. So our, yeah, our, just, our listeners know we we said lame. Yeah. You yeah, know, and, and I only recently realized that. Yeah. That it's ableist. Yeah, and so you know, being open to like I'm imperfect. I don't know. I love that you're saying here. You know, we don't have the answers yet. The research isn't there yet. We need to start having conversations so we can explore this further. Um, and for me, it's really interesting. The good and bad. Um, and kind of before and after and the um, redeemed and not redeemed applies a lot to the work I do around intuitive eating and diet culture and how harmful that is to us. And so um, it's something that I'm trying to shift my thinking around in all areas of my life. Like, why does this, you know, why does this have to be this black or white judgment about it, good and bad, um, when it's really, you know, we're each ha kind of having our own experiences and doing our best to get along in the world. And um, people are just in different places in their lives or they're having different different experiences. And I can't speak to somebody else's um you know, what someone else has gone through or where they're at and, and whether that's a good or bad thing. It's simply um, honoring that they're a unique individual, right? And so um, I love this, yeah. this. I love this concept. It's definitely yeah. something new to my brain that I want to play with. But I, and I think that's where you know, ultimately for those listening out um, that may be like WTF, like how dare you challenge, you know, the way I tell my story. And I, and I think that's a fair criticism, right? And I think it's a fair reaction. Mm -hmm. but the reality is like, we're always progressing. I mean, a, a hallmark of recovery, regardless of pathway is, is some type of interpersonal growth. Um, and I think merely what we're suggesting is, you know, 
assuming that none of us have it all figured out, right, and, and probably yeah. never will, is that a, you know, a, a characteristic that I think we can all value at some level is, is constantly just thinking through and not being happy with where we're at and, and realizing that, you know, that there might be something more or anything else. And there might not be, um, but certainly is there no right or wrong way. I think the, the, the goal of things like this is, is, like you said, to allow people, people's experiences, their individuality, their humanity can just be. It doesn't necessarily be put in this false dichotomy of, of good and bad, positive, negative. Um, and one of the things we do in our yoga practice all the time that's critical is sometimes just sitting with what is, right? And I think that that influences some of our mm. things um, in the way our way of thinking, at least for me. Um, I think the Buddhist teacher, Vinnie Ferrara, says right now it's like this. Mm. I love that. Um, what else do you want our listeners to know about you? Well, I'm 5'11", <laughs> long hair, like long walks on the beach. I love the way you say y'all. <laughs> yeah, my, my southern uh, drawl is gone, but some of the, the word choices. My wife likes to make fun of me for saying uh, cement or cement or con- like she thinks it should be some other way. And I can't remember which way is the wrong way or the right way, but she makes fun of me all the time. Or say, <laughs> Ariel's on um, our list too. She's on our list. We're going to have her up. She's a hoot. Y'all will, will absolutely love her. Um, yeah, I think to, to your question, right, what do listeners need to know? I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about some of the uh, other things that Ariel and I are doing along with the great board and, and some great instructors for our community here in Philadelphia that would love for everybody to kind of look at. So um, we are in the process of opening up a hybrid recovery community organi- organization that is part yoga studio that is trauma-informed and recovery-centric. Um, and then we also have a drop-in recovery center um, that has staff with peers for one-on-one peer services and, and coaching and also different types of mutual aid from uh, She Recovers, actually, which I'm excited about. Yay. Refuge Recovery. Oh, hold on. Recovery. We need a bell for that. Hang on. We need a bell. Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a bell for all of the hard work you've been doing yeah. and to further um, access in the recovery community. Absolutely, yeah. Ding, ding. Um, yeah, if you want to look more, you can go to uh, unityyoga.guru or unityrecovery.org. And you know, we're, we're happy to help support the, the podcast and everything else do through Unity Recovery. So, Yes, thank you for your support. It means the world. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, yeah. So thank you so much, Robert, for being on today. We really appreciate you. And um, for our listeners, definitely check out Unity Recovery. And we'll put all the all the details in the show notes, all of the little bits and pieces of and goodies that we talked about today thank y'all thanks robert <laughs> Yay. all right thank you for listening to breaking free podcast your recovery your way we want to hear from you email us at hello at breakingfreerecovery.com or join our facebook group breaking free community tell us what breaking free means to you